Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Dave Hall. I'm your host back for another week to talk about how you can get safely through retirement. This is a show where we help you better understand what that longest self-imposed period of unemployment that you're going to ever have in your lifetime will look like. It may be 10 years, maybe 20. Heck, it could be 30 or 40. It is what we call retirement, and we're here to help you. If you've not gone to my website yet, please do so, retirementriskadvisors.com. Here you'll be able to get access to all the tools, the resources, the education platforms, everything we have to help you better understand the risk you'll face during those retirement years and be able to bring some peace and comfort to what your plan should look like and what you should be doing today. Very excited about today's show. Today, I brought in with me Robert Farrington. He is an expert in a lot of things, primarily working with millennials, which you may think, well, that's strange. Why do we got someone who works with millennials coming in talking about uh, retirement topics that are going to help me? Well, it's because he is an expert in dealing with college and college investing. Started a, a website called The College Investor, provides a lot of content out there. One of the challenges that we see many retirees face is you're going into retirement with a lot of college debt. It's very surprising, 20%. Those of you 50 or older have some type of college debt, and it's usually more than those students that are just coming out of college. So I thought it would be fun today to talk to him, talk a little bit about some solutions out there, one specific solution, 529 plan, and how it might help you not only uh, get yourself in a better position going forward, but uh, help get that education paid for for those people that you love. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Robert, I I know I covered a lot of information, but tell us a little bit more, our audience, a little bit more about what you're doing now and kind of where your passion lies. Absolutely. So I started The College Investor, you know, 13 years ago now to kind of talk about my journey of getting out of student loan debt and starting to invest and build wealth. And since that time, we've really dove deep into getting out of student loan debt, all the nuances. And this was well before what you hear in the news today with all the different things going on. And now as millennials are starting to have kids, we have really focused on helping save and pay for college as well. But the interesting part is, is this transcends, like you just mentioned, uh, ages. Like I focus a lot on millennials, but man, there are a lot of older people approaching retirement with student loans. There are also a lot of grandparents that are looking to help their children and grandchildren pay for college and navigate that. So there's so much overlap here. I'm just excited to talk to you about it today. Well, I'm glad you're with us because it is something that was shocking to me initially when I saw the statistics and I had no idea that so many people were carrying so much student loan debt into retirement. Throughout my life, I've seen items like the 529 plan, something that that we've used to some level in our tax practice. But let's talk a little bit more in detail about what a 529 plan is. Maybe you can give us a quick overview. Absolutely. So the best way to think about a 529 plan is it's an education savings account, very similar to an IRA or 401k except instead of using the money to pay for retirement, you're using the money to pay for qualified education expenses, which is a fun word to say. You're paying for the tuition, the room and board of college, different things. It used to be known as just a college savings account, But over about the last decade, Congress has really broadened what you can use it for. So now you can use it for K-12 tuition at private schools, religious schools. You can use it for trade school. You can use it for apprenticeships. And you can even use $10,000 of it for student loan debt one time. So 
the amount of qualified education expenses continues to grow. And so it's really becoming a very versatile account for hitting a bunch of different purposes in this big education bucket. And who are you seeing set these up primarily? Is it someone setting it up for themselves? Is a parent or a grandparent setting it up for a child or a grandchild? That's exactly it. So it's mostly parents. So the account has an owner which is usually a parent or a grandparent, but it could be like an aunt and uncle, something like that as well. And it has a beneficiary, which is the child or the student, the future student, right? Because they're usually young. And, you know, I would say most accounts, probably 60% or so are opened by the parent, but you actually have about 30% or so that are going to be opened by a grandparent or relative like that. And in those cases, it's usually done for estate planning and gifting purposes. So there's a lot of versatility in these accounts and the way that you can use them by who owns it and what they're going to be used for. Robert, let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk about the funding of these products. Is it something that has a limit? How much can go into these on an annual basis? And is there a one-time gift that could be larger than what the annual amount typically would be? I mean, you hit it, right? So just like everything, we are handcuffed by how much we can contribute to these plans. And so you are bound by the annual gift tax limit to these plans. And so as we're recording this, that's $16,000 a year. But you know, if you're listening to this in the future, it might go up. So just realize it's the annual gift tax exemption limit that is what you can contribute. But you can super fund these. You can contribute five years of contributions all at once. So my math serves me correct. That's 75000 as of right now. But again, it's always based on the gift tax limit. So that could rise in the future. I will say, though, you have to look at the state plan rules. So the one thing that's very challenging about 529 plans is that they're state-based. So there are 49 plans in the United States because Wyoming does not have one, but all 49 other states do have plans and all of the rules for the plans vary state to state. And you need to realize this from a contribution perspective, a distribution perspective, and different things like super funding may or may not be allowed in your state plan. So definitely make sure you check the rules before you make a big contribution. And where can someone check these rules? Obviously, uh, a lot of information out there. Where's the best place to find this information? So first off, you can always check your state's plan guide. So, you know, whatever state you're in, you can go to that plan, you can find it. We have a whole list together on the College Investor as well. You can go to the collegeinvestor.com slash 529 plan guide and find your state. And we'll have all the rules listed, including what's allowed, what's not allowed, things like that. And you're buying it based upon which state you live in. Is that correct? Or can you buy a plan that's outside of the state you're currently living in? You can invest in any plan in the country. However, the tax rules are based on the state in which you live in. And so it may or may not be beneficial for you to use an out-of-state plan. For example, if your state gives you a tax deduction if you contribute, well, you probably want to use your state's plan so you can get your tax deduction for that. However, there's some states where you don't get any benefit from it. And in that case, hey, use the plan that best suits your needs out there. For example, California does not allow any deductions or anything for contributing to a 529 plan. So in that situation, you know, hey, maybe use a different state's plan if you like the investment choices, the platform, things like that better. 
And the benefits of this can be portable. Is that correct? Meaning if I live in Tennessee, which is where I live, let's say I put a 529 plan together here, and then my children decide to go back to Utah, which is where most of them were raised to go to school, I can still use that money for that school there. Is that right? That's 100% right. So again, it's based on the account owner where they're at, and the, the money can be used for any qualifying expenses nationwide, as long as it follows the state owner's plan. So again, if you're going to college, all the states allow college tuition. If you live on campus, that's room and board, that's tuition, that's books and supplies, it's things like a computer. But if you're talking K-12 to expenses, those rules, only about half of states allow K-12 to tuition to be used. So you got to really look at those plan guides and you could use 10000 a year for K-12 to tuition if your state allows it. Okay. Robert, let's talk a little bit about the funding now. Let's go back. So the gift exclusion amount, 16000 this year. That's per person. Is that correct? So if I'm a married couple and I'm putting money into a plan, I can actually get $32,000 in there. Is that right? It is per person and it's also per child or grandchild, right? So if you have two kids, three kids, you can do per person times per child. There's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Keep going up, Robert. Got to get to eight before you reach my number. <laughs> All right. That's a big check. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of money set aside in here. Let's talk a little bit about the one-time funding. So you've got the five-year option to be able to take that gift exclusion amount, put it all in one year. Does that exempt you from then contributing for the next four years as well? Is that right? That's exactly what it is. You're just pre-funding the next five years all at once. So you have the IRS form, you fill out, you say, hey, I've made my gift for the next five years to that plan. But Again, that opens up some interesting estate planning opportunities, especially when you just mentioned times each person, times each potential kid. You know, there's a lot of interesting ways that you can leverage that. Yeah, you see, there's a lot of money that can be transferred during a lifetime to really benefit someone versus waiting until they pass away, which is what we so often see is they wait until they're gone and then they don't have a lot of control over what happens. Many times the money doesn't even get where they wanted it to go. Here's a great opportunity to be able to use these plans to help those kids. Robert, you talked a little bit about each state obviously having their own tax rules, but you also mentioned that they all have their own investment platforms. Is there a substantial difference between what one state may have from an investment opportunity and the products available versus what another state may offer? Sadly, yes. <laughs> there are some really great state plans out there, and there are some plans that really are using a 529 plan to take advantage of uh, their citizenry. And what I mean by that is they charge exorbitant fees that are very high because that money does go back into the state treasury's pocket. So there are really great plans, and there are plans that are not so great. The great thing is, though, I will say, is most of the states that offer tax incentives and stuff to use the state's plans also are pretty good for the most part in terms of having pretty good plan options for their citizens. But I'll also say within the plans, they're very similar to a 401k in that you usually get a choice of about eight different funds. Three or four of them are going to be target date funds. And the target date of a 529 plan should be the date your kids go to college. So just keep that in mind as you're, you're picking the right plan. And then you usually have a like S&P 500, a bond fund, a stable value fund, things like that. So that's how most states set up their plans. And that's the investment options that are available to you know account owners, parents. Robert, can we talk a little bit about the taxation of this? You mentioned that each state has its own rules. So we do need to look at it from an individual state standpoint. But from a federal standpoint, 
Am I correct that the money going into these isn't uh, tax-free? I mean, you're getting a, an estate tax exclusion, but you're not getting an income tax exclusion, but then it's growing tax-free as long as you use it for qualified education purposes. Is that right? You got it. So the money goes in, it's after-tax money that goes in federally. Inside the account, it grows tax-free. And then as long as you distribute the money for qualified education expenses, there's no tax when it's you know, withdrawn from the account either. And so we mentioned a few of those, but tuition, room and board, supplies, books, computers, those things count for college. And then there's K to 12 expenses up to $10,000. Then there's potentially for student loans, $10,000 and apprenticeships, trade schools, things like that as well. Um, you can do tuition. So there's a long list of qualified expenses. And as long as you take the money out um, for those expenses, you're not going to pay any taxes. If you don't use them for qualified expenses. There is a 10% penalty and you do pay taxes on the gains as well. So, you know, that's one of the big kind of things that kind of puts people uneasy about using this. Like, what if my child doesn't go to college or things like that? And they're like, you know, you do pay taxes on the gains and a 10% penalty. Robert, let's talk a little bit about that. I mentioned I have eight children. My oldest son's named Todd. Let's say I put a 529 plan together for him. Now, he has finished college already, so that cost luckily has been paid for one out of the way. But if I were to have a 529 plan put aside for him and then he chose not to go to college, do I have other options with that money besides just pulling it out and paying the penalty and the tax? Absolutely. So first off, if you as the account owner can change the beneficiary. This is hard because there's a lot of psychology in this and how the families set up their money and how they talk about it. But you could send some of that money to another beneficiary, so another child, something like that. You can also change the account owner. So maybe Todd is now grown and he didn't use the money. Well, maybe you still wanted him to have that money. And so you could make Todd the account owner. And now Todd could change the beneficiary to his future children or leave it as himself for a while or a spouse or, or things like that. So, you know, the money can actually stay in the 529 plan almost like an education type trust vehicle because you're only paying the taxes and penalties when the money leaves the account. So that to me is always the worst case scenario. Is there other scenarios where you can transfer the account, change the beneficiaries? You know, you also have vocational school, apprenticeships, a lot of different things. So if your child doesn't actually go to a four-year college, there still might be a lot of opportunities to use the funds as well. Robert, what about advanced degrees? Going to be used for a master's or doctorate degree? 100% it can. It can be used for that tuition. If they're a full-time student, that room and board comes back into effect. So definitely an opportunity there as well. Yeah. If you look at this, uh, folks, you realize there's a lot more flexibility here than many people realize, but also a lot of homework uh, to some level it needs to be done. I don't mean uh, to overwhelm someone going through that process. Really shows, Robert, where you come into play. Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. I assume you've seen people make a lot of bad decisions as they've gone through this process. Well, it's just hard because like you said, all the states are a little different. There's nuances. You know, I will say the one thing is that the definition of what qualifies continues to expand. So I think that really does help a lot of families and encourages them to save. And, you know, even in light of recent things like student loan forgiveness being done, you know, nothing is really changing for the, the future college students these days. Like, College costs are still there. They're continuing to rise. So if you're on the fence of, you know, whether I should save for college or not, 
it's probably still a good idea to save for college or save for education or put this money aside for them. Yeah, the cost definitely is not going down when we look across the, the board and what college is going to be costing our kids and our grandkids. It appears it's only going to continue to go up. More than 50% of CPAs will run out of money in retirement, and this number is projected to grow because of risks like inflation, increased longevity, and rising healthcare costs. Retirement Risks Advisors has the perfect solution to help CPAs make their money last as long as they do. Learn more by signing up for our flagship webinar, Getting Safely Through Retirement. In this webinar, we share the top 10 financial risks CPAs will face in retirement and what can be done to reduce or eliminate each risk. To get started, visit retirementriskadvisors.com slash safe. Robert, let's talk a little bit about student loan forgiveness. Obviously, you cover all aspects of this, not just 529 plans. What are your overall thoughts of what's being done right now, the forgiveness that's being offered? I know you guys have run some surveys, get some opinions from other people. Any thoughts you can give us here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So first off, it's not a law change. It is an executive order to forgive 10000 to 20000 in student loan debt. And I think the hard part is it's not really great higher education policy. Does it help people? Absolutely. Some people will benefit from this. Some people will see a good amount of relief because their loan balances could be totally forgiven. But it really doesn't change the math for those saving for college, those currently in college, those dealing with repayment. It doesn't fix the system, right? So we're spending a lot of money and we're not fixing college costs. We're not changing the student loan borrowing system. We're not making higher education more accessible or, you know, really achieving any type of public policy good or goals here. So, you know, it's very challenging. I think we can't dismiss it. It helps people. And I will gladly help anyone try to navigate getting their $10,000 because I think it's essential that no one pays more to the government than they should, whether that's taxes or student loans or anything. But at the same token, it really doesn't help anything to fix the system in a way. Robert, do you have any thoughts on your own side of what would fix it? Anything that you've thought about as you've gone through this process, working with thousands of people, what the solution really is to get us back on track with our higher education? Yeah, I think the really it's holding schools accountable to their outcomes, but also realizing that it takes a lot of times for outcomes to be realized. So what we would advocate seeing is continuing to expand programs like public service loan forgiveness and different loan forgiveness programs, which might sound a little crazy, but you have to realize that public service loan forgiveness gives you loan forgiveness of any remaining balance after 10 years. So these people have worked in public service for 10 years. And then if there's any balance left on their loans, that's what's forgiven. And to me, that's a great incentive. You go into a career or or a job or work for 10 years, and you're paying on your loans for this period of time. If there's a balance left, yeah, that's like a bonus. Let's forgive that. But part two of that is who pays, right? And to me, the best payer of that forgiveness should be the college or higher education institution that originated the loan. Because they're the ones that, for whatever reason, the outcome didn't materialize. You charged too much. You know, you you didn't deliver on your promise. And so you're the one that should bear the brunt of it. The cons to that is, you know, we will see schools go out of business and we will. But on the flip side, these schools have the data. They know their default rates. They know who pays. They know who doesn't pay. The data is all available. You can find it too. If anyone's curious, you can go to collegescorecard.edu. It's a hidden government website that breaks down every school's 
like loan data. So you can go to your alma mater, you can see who's paying, who's not paying, what that looks like, how much student loan debt they have. So the data is there. So we can make more data-driven decisions on what should be charged for school, what the outcomes of schools are. And that would actually start holding people accountable. So I think the hard part is we're not holding anyone accountable to controlling the costs of higher education. You know, there are some people that were definitely harmed by the system. Things didn't work out. Let's help them. Let's try to get out of this. But on the same token, we have to hold those that harmed them accountable. Yeah, I'm all on board with you. It's one of the things that's always been very frustrating to me because I believe our whole student loan crisis is because the government allowed the institutions to charge whatever they wanted. And now we're going to back those loans, which brings up another question I have. Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you haven't. Is there a place for education on the student going into college? I see people all the time in my career went to one of these Ivy League schools and then come out and become a school teacher. Well, obviously, the economics of that degree and what they had to pay for for the job that they're getting and working in after they get out doesn't really add up. Is there some education opportunities there, something that could possibly be done to help people make a better decision before they even get in that college and start racking up all this debt? Absolutely. But the incentives, again, don't always align to that, right? So the high schools and stuff are trying to get the most prestigious names to say that their students went to. And, you know, there's a lot of family psychology involved in what schools children go to and the friends groups and peer pressure. And I I actually look at this more from a behavioral science perspective than a money perspective, because I talk to a lot of high schoolers and a lot of their families. And the shocking thing is, is I would say at least 80 to 90 percent of them understand the math and understand this ROI type philosophy about the value of education and the jobs after school, but they have a very hard time overcoming the psychology of it, the peer pressure, the the pressure from family and friends, and the thought that they're being judged, and that, you know, going to a community college for two years and transferring to a state school is almost an embarrassment to these young adults, when on the flip side, doing that is extremely cost-effective And you could set yourself up for financial success very quickly by doing that path and realize they're going to be judged when they're 29 and buying their house and having no debt too, (laughs) but they can't think that far ahead when they're 18, 19 years old, right? And so it's really hard because it really is more of a psychology thing than a math question at that point in time. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you come from my background, I had no option. I took what was offered. Uh, only way I got in school was through scholarships. And there was one school that I got a scholarship to. So it became this, this is where you're going. I happened to be a junior college, which worked out very well for me. And then I was able to transfer in, get my bachelor and master's degree from a state college and be able to finish that up. This is a very important topic to me. I I don't know if you know this or not. Our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, actually has a huge platform out there called Pathway that they're doing amazing things with. They're actually educating thousands and thousands of people across the country at a much lower cost than what you would typically pay for BYU or any other organization where you're going to get that type of education. Been fun to watch. When I lived in Puerto Rico, a lot of my friends were going through the program because it was way cheaper than any of the schools they had there on the island. Now, there are requirements to be able to become a part of that, but any thoughts from your side of whether education ever becomes institutionalized to a point. I mean, we've seen with a pandemic where more schools have gone online, but there's this option out there saying this is really an affordable option, but it's for everyone. Everyone can get inside and take advantage of it. 
Absolutely, and we're starting to see that trend. You know, I kind of view it as a pendulum. So, you know, in the last 20 years or so, this pendulum swung all the way out where everyone has to go to a four-year college and that's the only path. And if you don't do that, you're not gonna be successful. But over the last couple of years, and I think the pandemic really kind of accelerated it, you know, that pendulum swinging back in and saying like, hey, you know, maybe there are these alternatives out there. I know a lot of states are making community college free. I wanna say that the number is up to about 34 states now offer free two-year community college, not necessarily to everybody, but to a lot of qualifying residents in some states to everybody. And so that's an amazing benefit, right? Because that gets you in the door and decides what the options are. Also things like trade schools and apprenticeships, we're seeing a lot of that happening nationwide where because we do have this you know, labor shortage in America, especially for skilled workers in the trades, maybe electricians, plumbers, different things like that, a lot of places are paying for you to go to apprenticeship or trade school learn the job and you get a job right afterwards. And these can actually be very high paying careers that are badly needed in a lot of the country. So, you know, I think there's these alternative options. And then of course, in the tech sector, you see coding camps, things like that, where you can go get a job right away at Google or, or some, you know, tech company by doing these camps and boot camps. And so I think what you're seeing is that there are these alternative forms of getting education, higher education, and they are becoming much more accepted, more mainstream. And I really hope this trend continues because, you know, education is an investment. It's the best investment, but it's in yourself. And the ROI is, should be your future earnings and your career choices and that type of thing. And so it's, it's very hard to, you know, it's not as easy as doing like a safe withdrawal rate calculation and like, you know, <laughs> and figuring out your tax rate, but it's almost the most important investment, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is. So when you look at the amount of money you're going to make through your job versus what you're going to end up making in your investments, for most people, your income is going to far exceed anything you could ever make uh, through the, the other accounts. So, but a lot of it requires that education. And what's that education worth to you? And you know, how can you get into the education at a reasonable price? I know for myself, right now, I'm getting my CFP. There's a ton of organizations out there that are offering it, but the price is hugely different. I mean, the one I end up choosing because uh, I know myself, I trust myself, I understand most of what's being taught because I have my CPA license and been in the industry for decades. I chose one that was a tenth of the cost of most of the, the schools that were out there. So another thing we've got to look at is what are we hoping to get out of it? What is the school offering? And can we get that with, with what we're doing? Robert, I know I went down somewhat of a rabbit hole here. I want to quickly go back to the 529 plan as we wrap this up. Just see if there's any final thoughts, any recent changes that have happened that we should be aware of as we look at these 529 plans as an option to not only do some estate planning for ourselves, but also to start getting that college paid for in a better way. Absolutely. Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head there with recent changes. And so starting next year is what's known as FAFSA simplification. So free application for federal student aid, which that is, you know, the FAFSA is what qualifies students for grants and scholarships. It's also the application for student loans. But one of the big nuances for this is that it looks at your income and your assets including potentially 529 plans. And so one of the drawbacks historically has been if you have a lot saved for college, well, guess what? You might not get a lot of financial aid because they're looking at it and saying, hey, well, you have a lot of money. Well, starting next year, which looks at this year's taxes, uh, grandparent-owned 529 plans will be no longer included on the FAFSA form. So for all those grandparents out there looking to help their grandchildren save for college, you can do so now 
starting now, since it's this tax year, with no potential impact to the child's ability to get need-based financial aid through the FAFSA. So that's a really great benefit. Again, so if you're on the fence of, you know, potentially gifting towards your grandchild's education and or looking at this from an estate planning perspective, you can also realize it will be done without any impact to financial aid. And folks, when you look at that, don't just take the grandchild into consideration. Again, it may be that you want the money to go to your own child, but they're going to just pass it on to your grandchild. So maybe an opportunity to have some discussion and say, hey, rather than me giving you this money, let's see if we can set it up to where we all benefit uh, the way it's structured from an estate planning standpoint, from your ability to pay for college and help cover all those costs. Robert, any other parting thoughts as we try to wrap things up here? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to save for education. The 529 plan just happens to be one of the most robust. I would really consider it if it's something that you're interested in, especially from that estate planning perspective. If you're looking for, you know, I want a gift, but I want to make sure I have some control over how the money's used. Like this is a good one without getting into wills and trusts and estate planning complexities. The account is already set up to benefit education. And I think it's a great tool that families can use to benefit that. I know some families that are really using this as almost a, you know, generational education trust where the grandparents are super funding it for basically each of their grandchildren and it's sitting there and, you know, the the goal is it's going to be too much money and hopefully grow to too much, but then they're going to continue to hand it down for generations and continue to grow. So it's a, it's a versatile tool that has some really great features that you can use. Awesome. Robert, how can people get a hold of you? Where do they go to get your guide, learn more about uh, the content that you have out there to help people in making these choices? Yeah, so you can go to thecollegeinvestor.com. You can see the 529 plan guide right there under the saving for college tab. You can also see us on video if you do video, YouTube, TikTok, and we have a podcast called the College Investor Audio Show. So however you like to get your content, we're hopefully there for you. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been fun. My name's Dave Hall. I'm your host. Look forward to next week where we'll have another guest back talking about what you can do to get safely through retirement. And that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We come out with a new episode every Friday morning and you don't want to miss it. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would really help us out. The Retirement Risk Show is a production of the Retirement Risk Advisors. Our show was produced by C.R. Talene and Autumn Koenig. If you're a CPA looking for more retirement education, visit retirementriskadvisors.com.